Pushkin. Where do you see your career in 10 years? What are you doing now to help you get there? The sooner you start enhancing your skills, the sooner you'll be ready. That's why AARP has reskilling courses in a variety of categories like marketing and management to help your income live as long as you do. That's right. AARP has a bevy of free skill-building courses for you to choose from because the steps you choose to take today will help you love what you do in the future. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Today's show is about some very big, very timely ideas. Globalization, supply chains, the future of American manufacturing. Today's show is also about something very simple. A sweatshirt. A plain cotton sweatshirt with a zipper and a hood and a pocket to put your hands in when they get cold. The sweatshirt is made in America. It costs $138, and it is wildly popular. I'm Jacob Goldstein, and this is What's Your Problem? My guest today is Bayard Winthrop, founder and CEO of American Giant. Bayard's problem is this. How do you make clothes in America and compete in a global economy? I grew up on the East Coast, and, and I, I grew up... Um, in a, in a wealthy town in Southern Connecticut where all the successful parents that I was around worked on, at least in my imagining of it, worked on Wall Street. And, and I got pretty fixated on that as a young kid and wanted to, wanted to uh, figure out a way to make money, I think, and kind of put my head down and did that for um, all through my college years and eventually got a job on Wall Street and realized pretty quickly that it was the wrong thing for me. And, and I had always grown up... Um, I always loved consumer products. I loved clothing. Um, I have these very strong memories as a kid of my first pair of blue jeans and you know my first flannel shirt, my first champion sweatshirt, all these things that these very sort of strong associative memories when I was young. And I think that sort of informed for me a, 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 an idea that I wanted to make something. So Bayard started working at companies that made stuff, that sold physical products. And that was great for him. But those companies, like a lot of other American companies at the time, were moving production overseas. And that created a new problem for Bayard. And the more I did that, the more I became really clear about um, both a, a disconnect from the product itself. And, and there was a real loss attached to that, a feeling that I couldn't control quality as well. And I didn't feel that sense of responsibility and stewardship over the stuff that I was making. I mean, there was also a human part of that, that I felt that these people that had 
we built relationships with, that we were providing jobs for, that, that we were picking up and leaving. And as I got older, that really started to wear on me. And I began to contemplate the idea of American Giant with a really simple idea, which was I'd grown up around these great American brands, Levi's and Wrangler and Woolrich and all these amazing brands that had built very high quality products, stood for something in my imagining of it. And I felt that the, particularly in apparel, there were no brands like that left. And I wanted to do something different. I felt that um, not only could we make beautiful product here um, nearby, and but also do it in a way that was consistent with our values that respected environmental laws and human rights laws. Um, and I thought the moment was right. Uh, e-commerce was emerging. There was a bunch of advancement that had happened in manufacturing and technology and data that um, I felt um, could build sort of a new American brand. And so in 2012, we launched with a single product, a sweatshirt, a full zip sweatshirt. I'm wearing it now, actually. And that sweatshirt, we kind of I poured my life into. I sort of, everybody I spoke to told me it couldn't be done in the United States anymore. And um, we battled our way through that um, in real partnership with a bunch of people that remain suppliers of ours today. And late that first year, Slate Magazine wrote an article about that sweatshirt. Uh, they called it the greatest hoodie ever made. And that kind of changed everything for us. I looked up that Slate article. It was published on December 4th, 2012. So pretty much That's exactly right. 10 years ago. So I don't know, congratulations, your 10-year anniversary of making it as a company <laughs> Thank or something. Thank you. We're going to do, we're gonna do something special for that anniversary, by the way. So I appreciate you noticing that. Okay. Um, so, so like, tell me about seeing that article. Like someday, what happened? You get up, did somebody email it to you? What happened? Yeah, so- the article hit, and I got a phone call on the 4th at about 5 p.m. from the people that were managing our website and in a panic. And they said, are you seeing what's happening here? I had no idea. I said, no, what's going on? They said, we are getting orders now. We are getting hundreds of orders a minute. What would you get in a typical day? A hundred orders in a day? Oh, no, no, probably not even, actually, yeah. back then. Okay. This is like a... A, a good news, bad news situation? You're like, great, but oh my God, we don't have the sweatshirts? Well, so in the, in the short time, it was, great, it was sort of unfettered great news. I mean, it was really um, what you hope for, dream about as, a, as an entrepreneur starting something. It really was wonderful. There, was a, there were tents of challenges, like could we get the servers? Could we get the site loaded the on, website on multiple servers? To, yeah, yeah. yeah. And can you, so there's some short-term crises, but, but big picture, it was really great. But pretty soon, what happened is you know, by the next morning, we'd sold out of everything we had. We had a bunch of stuff that was in the, in the supply chain coming, yarn and fabric coming, that would carry us all the way through till about June, so six months ahead. We said, boy, why don't we put up a blog post and say, we're sold out, but, you know, Jacob, if you want a sweatshirt, you can give us your name and your size and your preferred color and we'll ship one to you and it may not get there till May or June. And that blog, we sold out of everything in the pipeline within huh. a day or two. And so that that's when things got really challenging. I mean, I think we, we then had to sit down. Here we were December 6th or 7th. We, we thought the article has just hit. It's Christmas. Everybody's in a kind of a holiday buying mood. We're not going to get back in stock at the earliest until July. Is anybody going to care then? Should we order 100 sweatshirts or 1,000 or 10,000? I mean, that was a fool's errand to try to predict that well. And we were no better about it than, you know, you and I might be trying to predict the future. And so we, we, we made decisions. We said, and, and by the way, those were scary decisions because if we decided to bring in 10,000 sweatshirts and we only sold 100, we would have bankrupted the company. Right. You've got you've to pay for the materials. You've got to pay for the materials Absolutely. now. And you yeah, don't you're know if you're going to sell 1,000 or 10,000. Yeah. And, and going through our head was in July, it's going to be 95 in New York City. <laughs> 
and no one's going to be buying a sweatshirt yeah. and this article is going to be old news. And so just to wrap the story up, what happened was that demand kept going. And one of the things I think we did in retrospect that was smart is we reached out to our customers and, and we sort of have been this since the beginning. We were just very honest with them. And we said, look, this is what's going on. And this is one of the challenges about domestic supply. And this is the situation that we're in. And all of our, I mean, maybe not all of them, they sure seem like all of them were like cheering us on saying that is the best. I'm, I don't worry. As soon as you can, if it's a year from now, I don't care. And people sat in lists, wait lists that lasted for months. And then here's the kicker. In June or July of that year, I don't remember when, Farhad checked back in with the business. I don't even know if you talked to me about it, but he wrote a follow-up article that was titled, the only problem with the greatest hoodie in the world is you have to wait six months to get it. And that did it again. It like tipped us back into this chaos. And so anyway, we, we were in this rhythm of trying to predict the future, probably being conservative so we didn't get too far over our skis financially. And we were constantly trying to catch up with demand without overcommitting to inventory. And that went on for a long time and, and actually outstripped our capacity of our facility that we were making the sweatshirts in at that time, which was out here in California. We purchased a facility in North Carolina and, and had to scramble to get that up and running. So it was a chaotic time, but, um, but you know, incredibly grateful for it because I don't think we'd be here today without, without that, you know, that year, you know, of, of, of insanity and then all the demand that followed. And so when you're in that position of being essentially having demand massively outstrip your supply, mm -hmm. you have some set of choices. Uh, don't sell a sweatshirt to everybody who wants one. Tell people they're going to have to wait a long time. Raise the price would be a classic response to that. I mean, which of those do you wind up doing over the course of that year or so? <laughs> well, we talked about all of them. Yeah. We talked about all of them. I mean, yeah. there were people that were saying like, Go to China. Like, what are yeah. you doing? Like, go go get on the phone and have the switcher made overseas. I mean, there was every option you could think of was on the table. And and but to your question, I think we put a couple of stakes in the ground. We haven't we did this with the pandemic too. It's always clarifying to me to figure out what do you what are your core principles? What do you believe in? One was that we, we were not gonna uh, we weren't gonna sacrifice quality. Uh, we weren't going to change our, our philosophy about how we made things, and we were going to be honest with our customers. And and that looked like big big delays. And, you know, people ask me a lot, like, oh, did you do that on purpose? And boy, it's great to be backward. And I'll tell you that um, it, 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 we, the business was great, but, but, but having customers have to wait for that long is asking an awful lot of customers. And, and uh, that was not, uh, I wouldn't want to repeat that again, but, um, sure. but that's I mean, the route the we took front, and, like and, and, and it worked. You're in business to sell sweatshirts and you can't sell all the sweatshirts people want. That's got to be a very mixed kind of blessing. Well, there's that and there's the there's just the reality of the deep sense of trust that a customer puts in you when they yeah. decide to spend their money on something you make. And and when you do that and you can't fulfill it and you're asking them to wait and it's gonna be another yeah. month and this just changed, it just you don't wanna be in that situation. So it was a it was a I'll tell you, it restored a lot of my faith in humanity and um and as I said earlier, I think we were totally honest about the whole process and that helped, but it was a it was a rocky couple of years there for sure. So okay, so that's the that's the dramatic beginning. Um I want to talk about the present now. I would imagine in the long run to make clothes for any significant market in the U.S., you have to do a lot of innovating, right? Like you have to figure out how to be efficient, how to use technology. And so I'm curious what you have learned. Yeah, I mean, I think just, just if I may, just to kind of frame it up a little bit, because I think it's important to kind of contextualize it somewhat. I think if you, as a framing principle, say, 
we are going to make things in the United States, let's say as a country, you make that decision. We're going we're gonna to make, we're going to be a bit more protectionist in our leanings. And I would suggest that companies, countries like Japan, South Korea, uh, Germany, Switzerland have adopted slightly more protectionist policies than the United States have. And as a result, they have to turn inwards to say, how do we remain competitive in a highly competitive world? The United States, on the other hand, largest marketplace in the world, the cost of entry to the United States is very, very low. Um, we've, we've made a decision to, to have trade barriers be very low. And the result is, is that there's, and I'm overstating this to make the point, there's less incentive to invest in capabilities domestically if there's an alternative right around the corner for apparel companies, let's say, to say, why don't I go overseas? Sure. Well, I mean, it's also the case, though, if you look at Germany or South Korea, basically other rich countries that are more protectionist and have manufacturing, they're not making a lot of clothes, right? Like those companies, they're making high tech things where you have highly skilled workers using fancy equipment. They're using their sort of natural international advantage, right? And so clothes seem particularly hard. Tell me how you do it. Like, So I'll give you a couple of examples and, and maybe one I'll go a little bit deeper on. In, in a typical apparel manufacturing facility, um, what you'll see is what is called batch sewing. So you'll see a line of operators, maybe five operators in a line, and they'll be sewing a sweatshirt. And each operator will have a single task. It might be Jacob's task to, to sew a sleeve onto a body. It might be mine to attach a hood to a body. And the next person's going to attach the zippers. And the final person's going to attach the labels. There's a bunch of ancillary problems with that. One is, is that you've got a massive amount of inventory tied up in working, in working process. Mm-hmm. And so you are, you're, the amount of inventory that's sitting on the floor is huge. You've got quality control problems. So let's say Jacob had a long night out in the town last night and he's, he's attaching sleeves to bodies. He's doing it correctly. Uh, catching that quality problem oftentimes takes hours, might take the next operator after a thousand units have moved down the line to him or her where they get caught. So there's a whole bunch of things there that are maybe a bit harder to see. I, I call them soft costs or hidden costs. Um, and so one response that we've done there is we've moved that batch approach to sewing into what we call modular sew or bump sew. And that is getting those same operators. First, first, they've got to stand up. That's a big, big change to get operators to get out of their seats and stand all day. That's a big ask. And then have operators to, uh, to cross-train so that Jacob doesn't only know how to attach sleeves to bodies, but he now knows how to attach zippers and hoods and labels. He can do every function. Mm-hmm. One thing that that does is it, it eliminates a vast amount of your work and process. That's a uh-huh. big deal. Uh-huh. It, it, it implements quality control at every step. That's a big deal. So you catch quality control issues the minute they happen. The other thing is if you are productive as a team, which most of our teams are, and you beat your expected output, you get bonused for every additional unit you make in a given day. They're, they're making more money. Uh, they're learning more. They're not just doing a single operation that's kind of a deadening one, one thing all day, every day. Yeah. Um, so that, that's an example of, of, of one of the changes that we've made. The reason why you don't see that more in the U.S. is that the capital investment's big. You've got to you've got to invest in the equipment. Number one, the stand up equipment costs a lot of money. Um, number two, you got to train your operators, cross train all your operators. That takes time. So let me ask you this: I mean, why couldn't someone at a factory in Asia do that, or could they? You could. Are they? You could. You could. Yeah, and you and you do see that sometimes in Asia. The paradox is um, that there isn't a ton of an incentive to do it, but you do see it. You see it domestically too. You see it in Asia. You see some of the some of the uh, the facilities in Asia uh, modernizing and, and using Toyota systems. I'm not sure I'm right about this. I think there's less of an incentive to do it in in textiles because 
you can throw cheap labor at the problem in places like uh-huh. that. There's less of the capital equipment. I guess part of what I'm looking for is like, you know, besides sort of branding and price, which are clearly important, like what advantages do you get out of being in the U.S.? And maybe one of them is, you know, more access to capital so that you can uh, buy the fancier machines and a, and a more highly skilled, perhaps, workforce that can, you know, respond to this innovation. I don't know. I think that's I think that's one. I think I think the the more profound ones are proximity to market, uh-huh. right? So I think I think that you, when you're close by, from a manufacturing standpoint, your ability, in my judgment, to to have higher quality control standards, closer relationships with your suppliers is, is enhanced. So having spent a lot of time manufacturing things overseas, I can just tell you when you're five time zones away and the language barrier in between, it's much harder to be on top of quality. I don't care what anybody says, it's just hard. Yeah. You spend a lot of time on planes and trying to figure out what's going on. And oftentimes you find stuff when, you know, too late when it's on a truck or on a boat and you're, you're, you know, you got quality failures on their way to you. But look, Jacob, the, the bottom line is it costs more money to make stuff here. What's, what's sort of the frontier now, like on the manufacturing side, like what's the kind of frontier problem you're trying to solve now? So we are working really hard now to take some of our, our learnings and pushing them upstream into our fabric providers and our dyers and our finishers and stuff and, and getting them to work with us on inventory and responsiveness. So, for example, you know, using working with, let's say, Carolina Cotton Works, one of our key suppliers in Gaffney, South Carolina, so that we can, when we need another 6,000 yards, we can let them know, pick them up a day or two later and move them up the road by, you know, in a few hours and be going again and, and constantly trying to lower work and process and increase increase response times that we can be into market much faster. Uh So that is a game of increments. That really is a game of increments. And it seems like that's sort of abstractly how you get manufacturing clusters, right? You have these related businesses. I mean, if you go to lots of places in Asia where they make everything, there's like a million different companies that do each little stage and they all work with each other. I mean, it seems like that's what you're trying to build at a regional level, basically in the Southeast US, yeah? Yeah. If you begin to build a, let's say, a fabric supply capability that is supplying American giant quickly, high quality, they can pivot that and look at upholstery for furniture. They can pivot that and look at upholstery for automobiles. Uh And so there is this spidering out that happens as that capability develops. It really does build, to your point, a network of suppliers and capability regionally. So if you look like places like Gaffney, South Carolina, or Spartanburg, South Carolina, they are becoming manufacturing centers. Gaffney, place where we get a lot of our yarn out of Gaffney, we get a lot of our fabric out of Gaffney. Gaffney has got a really vital and vibrant little manufacturing textile industry that's growing. And the more people that work there, the the better they get, the more customers they attract, the more they can expand outside of, of specific industries. And so that's absolutely right. In a minute, Bayard and I will talk about the costs and benefits of free trade. We'll also talk about why the cost of his American Giant classic hoodie went from $79 to $138. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you get there? There are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. That dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events, 
So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, health, and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash wisefriend. Okay, 10 seconds. How many things can you name that are always growing? The universe, easy one. Um, my kids, so far. Uh, To-do lists. Uh, for this month, my sugar snap peas. I know that's not always. I know I'm out of time, but I'm going to give you one more. Businesses on Shopify. <laughs> Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. There are key moments in every endeavor. I ask pretty much everybody I interview on this show about their key moments, their breakthroughs, their failures, their turnarounds, and Shopify can be there for you at all of your key moments. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash problem. Go to shopify.com slash problem now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash problem. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans have this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Now, back to the show. I think it's worth talking about cost and price for a minute. Um, in that article 10 years ago, it said your classic hoodie was $79, which adjusted for mm -hmm. inflation is right around $100 today. 
Uh, mm-hmm. The classic hoodie costs $138 today. So mm-hmm. it's a lot more expensive, even adjusting for inflation. Um, tell me about tell me about the price. Like, how do you how do you arrive at that price? So I think a few things. I think for starters, um, you know, one of the things is as a, when you start off a company and you have an idea, and you probably can relate to this, is that you, you make a product, you pour your soul into it, and there's an inherent insecurity about, gosh, is is it really worth what we're investing in this thing? And will customers pay for it? And so we had underpriced the garment in the beginning. And I think a lot of that was frankly just insecurity on my part of just feeling like, you know, maybe we don't need to make much of a margin here because if we charge, you know, $109 for this thing, will people ever pay for that? And I think that was my reference about the, the Slate article in the beginning about really kind of uh, taking me to, to give me a boost of confidence that I feel like I needed. Now, at the same time, uh, one of my board members said to me, congratulations, you've just sold a bunch of under margin product to a bunch of people. And so yeah. and so he 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 was in a in a not very subtle way saying, you think that you're, what you're standing for, that supporting U.S. jobs and U.S. communities and that level of quality is worth something. Prove it whether your customers will pay for it. That's a good question, good point, good challenge. So that's part of the answer. Uh-huh. Part of the answer, too, is that, is that over the last couple of years, cotton, our inputs have increased a lot. Really, two things have increased. The cost of cotton got very, very expensive over the last couple of years, um, number one. And the cost of domestic labor got a lot expensive. Oh, we couldn't get people to work in the supply chain. And so those two inputs drove uh, our costs up a ton. Uh-huh. Um, and cotton's come down a bit. Labor has not. So it's a, it's a combination of all those things. Um, and, you know, I think my hope is, is that there's an opportunity to, to bring that 138 uh, down if input costs come back down. But the reality is we are, you know, we are subject to um, to things like domestic cotton prices. So, so you mentioned labor costs going up. It's obviously been a tight labor market nationally. Uh, you know, one of the things I was curious about is what would it mean for your business if Congress raised the national minimum wage to $15? My answer to this is always, um, it's an incomplete question. Because if, if what you're saying is, should Congress raise the minimum wage to 15 or $20 an hour, um, but at the same time, allow every textile business to avoid those minimum wage laws and make stuff in, in China, all you're doing is you're putting out a bunch of people and businesses out of business. You're just making it incredibly difficult to get textiles to compete. So, so would it, if the Congress raised the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour and didn't change, it, it would it would basically put you out of business? Is that what is that what you're saying? No, I don't know if it would put us out of business, but it would it would it would increase our input costs. Yeah. And so we would then have to, you know, we, we can't just absorb that, right? But to answer your question simply, if minimum wage laws go up, our input costs go up, it means that we have to pass those costs on to our customers. And so do I, am I in favor of minimum wage laws? Absolutely. Do I think that they should get higher? Absolutely. I think we should just have trade agreements that reflect that, that provide some measure of protection to the men and women that are trying to build, you know, good working class jobs and communities all across the country and not get just hammered by competition from places that are not compliant with those rules. And so, so in that universe, we have a higher minimum wage in the U.S. and and new rules that either impose tougher labor standards, say, on China, or or impose a higher tariff on imports from China. And so, what we have in the end then is more expensive sweatshirts made in the U.S. Your sweatshirt is more expensive, and so are sweatshirts imported from, say, China. Yeah. So, so I think forty years ago, we said, "Hey, listen, we're going to trade with everybody," and by doing that. What's going to happen is China is going to be dragged into the modern world and they're going to be a really good partner to us. 
And in fact, what's happened is over the last 40 years, we've had a massive transfer of capability and capital to China. And China's become a more intractable foe, not the Chinese people, the Chinese government, a more intractable foe of ours today than they were 40 years ago. On the other hand, had our trade agreement been based on uh, what I think Janet Yellen is referring to as friend shoring, meaning we're going we're gonna to do business with people that share basic values with us, things like freedom of the press, freedom of speech, uh, rule of law, minimum wage standards, then you have access to the United States marketplace. That would include everyone from Israel to France to Germany to South Korea to Japan, all countries that basically adhere to a set of standards that we view as being basically human values. I think that is the, tra- the type of trade agreement where if you want to have access to the American marketplace, you've got to adhere to a set of standards. That would translate over time, hopefully, into consumers operating a bit more maybe European or Japanese or South Korean where there is a bit less con- consumption, a bit higher emphasis on quality. Things cost a bit more, but they last, I think, a bit longer. And if you look at the underlying data in the textile world, it's, it's, it's discomforting. I mean, I, you know, the average, I'll just bore you with statistics for a second. The average American family today spends about $1,600 on apparel and footwear per family. In 1980, in today's dollars, the average American family spent about $1,600 per family. So that the, the, in, in dollars to dollars, it has not changed much. But in 1980, it represented about 80 items. Today, it represents about 185 items. Uh-huh. And the average American family throws away about 80 pounds of clothing a year. And so there's been a structural shift among the American marketplace towards cheaper stuff that we throw away. And I think that's got terrible implications for for the environment, for us as consumers, for our ability to provide good jobs to places that need them. And so I I would advocate for that. I think you have to do it over time and you get to do it slowly. My preference as a consumer would be to be able to buy clothes that are made in the developing world ethically, basically, right? Because I do feel like Lots of people in the developing world, like more than a billion, have gotten, you know, out of poverty in that 40-year period because of trade, and that that is basically good. And I agree with you that lots of bad things have come along with that. And I'm curious, like, are there any apparel companies that you think manufacture in the developing world and do so in an ethical fashion? It's very, very hard. Yeah. So I appreciate your, your, I'm not being my critical, dream, but I appreciate the dream. bromide. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I appreciate the dream. Yeah. What about Patagonia? Like, I, I kind of believe Patagonia. Like, am I right to believe Patagonia? I think you, I think you are right to believe Patagonia. But if, if, if you, if you read what Patagonia says, they, they recognize that they operate in an imperfect manner. I mean, they say we try to do more, more good than harm. And I think inherent in that statement is we make things in China. And inherently making things in places that are far away means they have to sit on container ships for long distances. To me, the way I agree with you, by the way, I think trade and capitalism lift people out of poverty. No, no better way to do it than I'm aware of. But I think that, it, that we also have to reconcile to what extent are we, are we comfortable with trading with countries that, that maybe practice things that are, you know, are human rights violations or that are environmental violations. Do we care? And if we care, what do we do about it? And I would suggest that what you do about it is that you make trade deals with countries that, that respect basic standards of behavior. Those would include, for me, democratic elections, free and fair, freedom of speech, free, demo, free a good and functioning judicial process. And they're, they're, unfortunately, we trade with a bunch of countries that don't, that don't are, respect those Are there those countries so, in, the, in the developing world that meet those standards? 
for you? Yeah, I think a lot of countries in our hemisphere, by I the mean, way, Mexico, Does uh, Mexico? are much are much better. Yes, yeah. much better. Honduras, El Salvador, Mexico. Yeah. There's a lot of good, and and that that uh, that reshoring to this hemisphere is happening quite quickly, and that is a very good thing. It's environmentally good. Doesn't have to travel so far. Doesn't have to go on container ships forever. And those countries, by and large, are genuinely trying to to have good institutional functional norms that we can. So yes, absolutely, there are. Yep, and I and just to be clear, I think the one end of the spectrum is a you know total protectionist that that doesn't work for anybody. I just think we have to ask some questions about what should be in our trade agreements and and how do we think about domestic capability and you know I think the the counter to your argument about I, I would love to have textiles in a developing world, me too, but I also want to have good vibrant jobs for people. You, know, you come through my supply chain sometime, go to some of these rural communities in the southeast, and you know you see lots and lots of towns that have no jobs. And, and that's a, that is a tough thing to reconcile too, that, you know, we've, we've got a responsibility there as well, that we've got to figure out ways for young men and women, maybe they only have high school degrees that are looking for jobs to help, you know, help chip in, help pay their way. We've got to, I think we've got to provide good, viable, dignified jobs to those people, safe jobs, jobs where they can move up. And I, I, I think it is uh, a shame that we let our biggest companies ignore that. And I think they are ignoring that. I think they're, they're, they're choosing a cheaper way that is returning a huge amount of value to their shareholders and they're not wrestling with a lot of the things that I think societally we need them to be wrestling with right now. We'll be back in a minute with The Lightning Round. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you get there? There are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. That dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, health, and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org wisefriend. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to The Tipping Point and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb 
to elevate their company while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best fit prospects through campaign optimization. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no-obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention, new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Now it's time for the lightning round. Let's close with the lightning round. Just a bunch of questions, somewhat lighter in tone than this conversation we've been having. Are you ready to pivot I'm to the ready. lightning round? I'm ready. So I know you used to work at a snowshoe company, and I'm a big fan of skiing and cross-country skiing and sledding, but I never really got into snowshoeing. Can you like briefly sell me on snowshoeing? Oh, that's an easy one, Jacob. Yeah. <laughs> snowshoeing is, it requires, if you can walk, you can snowshoe. No lift ticket required. There's nothing quite as magical as parking on the side of a road and putting on a pair of snowshoes and walking really 20 yards into a snowy forest. And suddenly it is silent and you are immersed in, in wilderness and quietude, unlike anything you'll experience. And so I think you can do it with families, young people, old people. You don't need to pay to do it. I just think it's magical. I think it's magical. And it's a, it's a great, fun activity for the whole family. If you were going to start another company that didn't make clothes, what would you do? Uh, I love to make pizza. And so I want to start a pizzeria in some beautiful spot when, when I don't care about making money anymore. That's your dream? That's your that? escape? Your escape fantasy is move to Napa and That's make my pizza? escape. My, I don't think it's Napa. Oh, I think it's the Northeast. I think it's getting back home. Yeah. Well, last question. Uh, what's one piece of advice you'd give to someone trying to solve a hard problem? Uh, don't give up. I really think that the mistake that, that, that entrepreneurs make a lot is that they, they don't keep their legs pumping against the blocking sled. I think that you know, eventually things start to break your way. It's not always the case, but I think I have found that when I'm at my most tenacious and I hang in there the longest, things break your way eventually. Good. I lied. I got one more. Uh, what's, a, what's, a tip to, <laughs> what's a tip to make clothes last longer? Once you've bought something, I like, I like my clothes to last a long time. Uh, I don't like getting rid Buy of Buy good stuff. Buy good stuff. Buy good stuff. I know, but yeah. once I've bought good stuff, what do I do? Buy good stuff, wear, uh, wash them less. Uh-huh. I mean, I don't know if you got kids or not. I got kids. You know, they, they will wear a sweatshirt and it's in, the, it's in the laundry pile. It's like, no, no, no. 
That, 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 that sweatshirt does not need to be, unless sniff you pits, spill right? your spaghetti sniff, on it. Sniff the yeah, pits. Sniff the pits. Yeah. That's my yeah. advice. Yeah. Ask me that question again. The next time I'm asked it, I'll say, sniff the pits. Okay. Don't wash until you need to. Yeah. yeah. Buy good stuff and, and wash them. Don't wash them that often. That, 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 that'll make your clothes last a lot longer. I try and hang dry yeah. my stuff. Am I fooling myself that that helps? No, 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 no. Okay. That's right. I mean, you, that's right. I mean, you put you put fabric, you have cotton, you have cotton, particularly cotton garments and and synthetics. You know, they they are under high heat. Not it's not great for them, and they get banged around a lot. So yeah, hang drying is great. Okay. Yeah, but just wash them less, and you'll be doing a good turn for the environment while you're at it. Bayard Winthrop is the founder and CEO of American Giant. Today's show was produced by Edith Russelo, edited by Robert Smith, and engineered by Amanda K. Wong. I'd love to get your suggestions for who else I should talk to for the show. Uh, you can email us at problem at pushkin.fm, or you can find me at Twitter at Jacob Goldstein. I am Jacob Goldstein, and we will be back next week with another episode of What's Your Problem? Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. If you're looking for a new podcast but don't know where to start, here's one you can add to your list. The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening. Jordan talks to everyone from neuroscientists to CEOs to astronauts, authors, and performers. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with historian Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his episode with Fool Me Once author Kelly Richmond Pope on how fraud became a trillion-dollar industry. Whether Jordan's conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way, or it could just be discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts.